Hey guys, welcome to the Drone Horizon podcast. I'm Alex and today I'm joined by James Heesman. James, would you like to introduce yourself? Okay, so my name's, uh, I'm James Heesman and I've been a photographer now for about two years now and uh, mainly got into drone photography after the first year and mainly just did it because I wanted to uh, almost use it as an additional lens. So just that extra point of view, I just found really interesting. Uh, I think the main things that kind of threw me into that was more um, mainly through Instagram, to be honest, and uh, the top-down shots especially. So I'm really into uh, really into shooting landscapes, but travel, adventure, uh, photography as well. Uh, but I also get involved in some commercial projects, so some product photography and, and things as well. But on the drone side of things, yeah, it was, mo- it was specifically for photography rather than videography that I got into it. And it was seeing a lot of these top-down shots, and I just really wanted to uh, to utilise that and put it, get some some of that content into the portfolio. Cool. Well, thank you very much for taking time out of your evening um, to chat. Obviously, really appreciate you coming on. Um, as always, we've asked you to send over sort of three pictures that are your favourites or have some kind of story to them. So we'll start off by talking about the black and white snow picture. Um, so do you want to run us through why you've chosen that one? Yeah, so that that image kind of encapsulates what um, you know what what I've been trying to focus on over the last few months. Obviously, with having some snow, uh, so yeah, it's uh, it's something that I find I found a bit of a challenge to begin with. I've I've shot a lot of uh, going out at you know the usual kind of photography times, going out golden hour to get those uh, get that nice light. But I think shooting snow scenes can be quite difficult. Uh, so I was always trying to uh, overexpose the images and practicing getting that exposure right and making it easy to edit. So this specific location, I just like the, I like the setting. So I think a lot of the time when I'm, uh, when I'm shooting, especially when I'm shooting with a new lens or, and with the drone specifically, I, I kind of go out, do a bit of scouting first. So I've been to this location, which is uh, not far from where I live. Uh, been to this location about five or six different times with the, with the camera. And I just thought it'd be a really nice point of view to get that top-down shot uh, with the drone. Um, and it was a little bit of a challenge to, to edit. Uh, it was one of the first kind of proper snow scenes that uh, uh, that I had taken shots of. And I think the trick was just to try and get it just that on the high side, so not to not to have it with any snow shot. It was not to, uh, not to have it too underexposed because trying to pull that back in Lightroom is very difficult. Um, so yeah, I was really pleased with that shot actually, and it's kind of inspired me to get out and shoot a bit more in in snowy conditions. Yeah, definitely. And I think you've probably been a lot luckier than the, most of us listening um, with snow. I mean, we've had one snow day down. I live in the south of the UK, um, and we've had one snow day basically in eighteen months. So I think for you, obviously living up in Scotland, it's probably a you get a little bit more regular snow, which is quite nice. I mean, this shot in particular, I really like because you've got. Uh, quite a big contrast between the dark water and then obviously the white on on the trees and stuff but also just on the top left hand side it you almost look like you're catching the orange of golden hour hitting the sort of the top of the trees um was this a golden hour shot obviously i know you mentioned that you kind of shoot at golden hour it was actually just slightly before uh so quite often i've found especially doing I quite like that top down shot into trees whether it has snow or not but i found that when I'm shooting those types of shots, if it's just that little bit t- too dark or the sun's just dropped too far, it's almost too dark to then pull back again. So I tend to kind of 
aim for about just the hour before <laughs> golden hour. Uh, so just, yeah, two hours before sunset, basically. Uh, and I seem to find that that just gives you enough light that it's just starting to get, get into that nice golden colour. Uh, and it's obviously, it's enhanced a little bit with uh, with a bit of editing. Uh, so generally, I put a graduated filter on these to enhance the light in from one side. Uh, so there's a wee bit of manipulation there, if you like, to just give it a bit of a, a boost uh, and not have it so mono monochromatic. Um, but, and it's the same with the, the water. I tend to I quite like texture in water uh, and quite like the texture and shadows and things as well. So generally I kind of darken, darken down the water. I always shoot with um, a polarizer. So I use Polar Pro filters on the, uh, on the DJI Mavic. And it's Mavic Air that I use. Uh, so yeah, I've got a full set of filters, but mainly it's the polarizer that I use just to take that glare out of the water and try and pull out some some texture. So yeah, definitely. I mean, you obviously mentioned that you sort of prefer shooting sort of the hour before golden hour, and you mentioned that you quite like doing sort of that traditional top top down drone stuff. Um, have you experimented at all with the sort of shadow work where you see? sort of where you have like a subject and you're looking straight down and use the shadows to sort of give them, to give an idea of what it is that you're looking at. Yeah, I have to be honest. Uh, and to be honest, to try and help that as well, I've recently just been pushing a little bit more, trying to bracket every shot as well. I'm trying to give, me, give myself some different options. Uh, so I do tend to bracket all my, all my shots. Uh, and another thing I've been experimenting with that to get those longer shadows is actually doing uh, panoramics. Uh, so I'll, I'll stretch that out to get a, a better, especially I tried, I haven't actually uploaded this image yet, but I've tried a, tried a few images whereby I've had a subject walk, walking through a gap in the trees, but rather than a, a, a pure top-down shot, I've just stepped back slightly uh, just to accentuate those uh, those shadows. And that, yeah, that effect actually looks quite nice, especially if you get a little bit of uh, low cloud or some mist, some fog coming in around the trees can be re really good but trying to get that in one exposure with a small sensor on a drone is, is quite tricky so generally it takes you know two three sometimes four exposures to get that get that looking good definitely i mean when you first sent over this shot as well my the first thing i saw obviously other than sort of the, the contrast that you've got into it um i couldn't help but see that the water almost looks like a love heart I don't know whether that was intentional in, in the way that you've shot it, but I suppose that's something that you probably wouldn't see if you were looking at it from the ground. Yeah, so this, this particular uh, site is actually, it's on a private estate, and I know the, I know the owner quite well. Uh, really, really nice nice guy, and he's uh, given me permission to uh, to be on site to photograph this area quite a few times, and he's actually purchased some, some prints for me over the, over the last year, uh, including that particular image. Uh, and... Yeah, it's one of those that you can see it from the ground as the, the small jetty kind of protrudes out from the front of it. But I kind of had it in my head that I knew that was going to look that much better from, from the sky, basically. So as soon as I got the drone up, uh, it was really exciting to see it and see the actual shapes coming together because when you're shooting on a normal, uh, on a camera at ground level, you just don't see that shape. But yeah, it's really it's been really nicely uh, designed, that little lake, so really good bit looks yeah in my opinion i think it looks great yeah. yeah definitely absolutely and especially with the snow i think sometimes i've shot that exact composition previously in uh, in the autumn and the autumn colors are still really really nice as well but i don't think it it kind of uh, 
did the shapes as much justice. I think the contrast with the snow and darkening the shadows a little bit just really makes the shape pop, you know? Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously I mentioned that we haven't really had that much sun down in the south of England. Um, and I think the only snow day that we've had was a couple of weeks ago. Um, and it only snowed for probably an hour and a half and then it started raining and all the snow disappeared. So I actually went out and shot my local woods, um, which is somewhere that I've shot plenty of times before. But I know what you mean about the snow transforming it because it can really make a something that maybe you sort of take for granted and you just think, oh, it's just some trees and maybe something that wouldn't necessarily stand out. Obviously, the having that snow in there can just completely transform it. So it's really nice that you're able to, you know, shoot in the same location and sort of see the differences and almost put them side by side and see how different the snow can make somewhere look. I think it really, yeah, I think it does a great job, the snow, just of simplifying simplifying a scene, you know, quite often. And I think the autumn does that as well because everything's that little bit subdued and then you get those nice warm oranges coming through. Um, and then, yeah, in summertime, I think for most photographers is can be a frustrating time to shoot. And I think it's more because I, well, I find personally that it's, it just gets too busy, you know. So I think just having less color range in the in the shot just makes all the difference. Definitely. Um, you briefly touched on the fact that you do, obviously, with this kind of shot and, and with others that you've shot similarly, that you do a sort of like a little bit of manipulation and that kind of thing. How much of that is done in like editing software like Lightroom? And, and do you tend to take things into Photoshop as well to sort of, manipulate it maybe further or is it more sort of that's sort of the composition and you just sort of mess around with the colors and stuff like that yeah i mean the, the only thing just uh i do very little in photoshop to be honest most of it i uh, kind of make my, uh, my own set of uh, presets that uh, apply on and i've got ones that are specific for editing drone images you can't i find that you can't really push the editing as far with it just because the size of sensor and the limitations you've got with the drone uh, photo, you can't really push it as far as you can with the mirrorless cameras now. Uh, so I have a different set of um, uh, set of presets that I put on and see what what works with the shot. Um, and then also for kind of optimizing it for for Instagram, I'll tend to shoot landscape and then crop it into that four by five. Uh, so I'll pick the the frame out of the landscape image um, and then get yeah a bit of correction and that side of things do most of my editing in Lightroom. And then I always, I do always take every image into Photoshop and mainly it's not really manipulate. I, I, I tend to, the most I tend to do in Photoshop, I do a lot of kind of spot removal. So um, I tend to clean up the image a lot. I like to remove any small distractions, just really just yeah clean the image more than anything. I don't tend to add anything into the image, but I tend to take quite a lot out of the image just to simplify things a wee, uh, quite a bit. Uh, but all the kind of graduated filters, uh, color grading and everything is all done in all Lightroom, yeah. Yeah, and I think Lightroom, obviously Lightroom has those similar abilities to be able to sort of remove spots and that kind of thing. But I think Photoshop is a smarter program and works slightly better for that. So I think that sort of moving things over to, to Photoshop and being able to sort of be fluent in both of them is, is definitely sort of a skill to have. Um, moving on to your second image that you've sent over then, do you want to talk us through why you've sent this one over? This is the one with the lighthouse. Yeah, so that that, uh, that image, that's kind of what the type of shot that kind of inspired me to get into drone photography, to be honest. It's that really simple 
simple composition, top down. Uh, always having a, a lot of my a lot of my photos, I like to have a strong subject, um, but I do find that those top downs just look so so much cleaner when it is a very simple simple composition. So it's local to me. It's in uh, in a city called uh, Aberdeen, which is about twenty miles from where I stay, um, and I've been photographing that area for uh, for two three years with with a camera. But I always had it in my mind that. I thought this would look look nice with a uh, from the sky, and I've seen quite a few different perspective shots. Uh, it's quite a popular area for drones, uh, but I've never seen just a simple top down. So this one took a little bit of a little bit of persevering. I actually shot three different uh, images over a few days because the first day I went out it was actually the weather was Scottish, <laughs> so it was really really wild and probably too wild to put the drone up to be honest so and the the Mavic Air is, is not too bad not too bad in the wind but it was struggling a little bit and what I tend to do when I'm um, shooting photos on the drone I'll put it into tripod mode to try and keep it as, as steady as possible and it was just really struggling the first day so I didn't quite get it as sharp as I liked so um, the second and third I just had slightly better light actually the second day and obviously nicer weather made it easier to get so but yeah the main thing is just simple composition nice clean subject and uh, yeah it's one of the things that kind of inspired me to get into into drone drone photos so obviously this shot's shot by the coast so how do you find flying with birds because obviously down when you're on the coast you get a lot more sort of seagulls and some of them tend to be quite intrigued by drones um, from my personal experience and experience of others sort of speaking on the podcast. So how do you find that they behave around drones? Have you sort of had any scares with birds sort of diving for your drone or anything like that? Nothing, nothing too major. I have had a few scares. So this, this particular uh, uh, lighthouse, it's actually, I say it's Aberdeen, it's technically Aberdeenshire, slightly further out in the coast. And the lighthouse itself, sorry, is called uh, Rattery Head. Um, and uh, you don't really get a huge amount of birds uh, going for the drone that I've found because I've, I've had the drone out there quite a few times and they tend not to get in the way too much but the lower and closer to the lighthouse you get you're always going to run the risk of maybe scaring a few um, but no I haven't really had many issues with that I think the main issue I had with the air is um, I think the air 2 is a big improvement which uh, I have a shot of one at the moment and I think it's just that signal so the the signal dropping out between the controller and the drone when you're that far off the coast that can be that can be a bit of a scary moment <laughs> uh, and to get the some of the other shots I've taken in this lighthouse I've gone round the far, further out in, into the sea to shoot back and the signals dropped out a few times but most most well it's always come back put it that way <laughs> yeah but no in terms of birds not really not really so how far out to sea is this? Because just by sort of the, I mean, obviously, I know you mentioned that you use a polarizer, so we can obviously see through the water um, in the foreground. You can sort of see that it looks reasonably shallow there. So sort of how far out to sea is this? Yeah, it's about, oh, I would say about three, four hundred yards, depending on uh, the time of day and where the tide is. Uh, but yeah, it's extremely shallow. There's actually a, a walkway. It's not an official walkway, but there's actually a raised kind of uh, uh, run into the lighthouse where there did used to be uh, 
they used to actually be, I think there was actually two tracks there originally, and that's how they used to transport equipment over. But you can walk over to it in low tide. Uh, there's kind of a raised walk walking area, which is just made of made of rock, really, and uh, nothing nothing very uh, very sturdy. But yeah, it's it's really good because it's because the water's that shallow. You, with the polarizer, you can kind of take that glare out and see right through it, and you get some really interesting colors and shapes through it. So it can be really interesting. But um, yeah, it's I've seen quite a it's a very popular place. To be honest, I don't see a huge amount of drone images of it. Um, there's a lot of photos of this lighthouse, but I think with the drone, again, I just think it adds that extra dimension, that extra perspective that is why we love drones. <laughs> yeah, and I think this shot as well, obviously going back to the sort of shadow work that sort of some other people have used, I think this shot would look great with maybe like a, a long shadow cast on it from like a, a low sun. Um, is the sun behind you in this shot or is it sort of off to the side? Just off to the side. So yeah, yeah. This one, to be honest, there's some, a lot of the times when I go out and shoot, you always try and hit that that nice time with a nice light, but quite often life gets in the way. So photography for me is a, is a hobby and something that I do out with my normal nine to five. So basically when I can get out to shoot, I head out so it's uh, it depends on the time of year as well obviously if, if you get finished if you're working at 9 to 5 and you get finished just after 5 o'clock and you get that sunset time just as it is just now just coming into that kind of time um, it, it's nice because you're going out when the light is good um, but I think this one was just slightly earlier I think again it was probably about an hour before uh, actual golden hour uh, but it still gives some reasonable light, but maybe just that little bit, that little bit harsher. Um, and I think you're right, absolutely. I think maybe a little bit longer uh, with the sun that little bit lower, I think we just exaggerate those shadows a bit more. Yeah, definitely. And you can sort of see the pink um, on the horizon as well, uh, sort of obviously showing that it's sort of nearing sunset as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's funny because a lot, I tend to drift between a few different styles sometimes I do like that kind of uh, desaturated moody look in a lot of my images uh, drone images and camera images but I tend not to go for the picture postcard uh, kind of sunset shots all the time but a little bit of colour is, is nice but I, I tend to like it being on the subtle side just having a, that little bit of pink but perhaps not a, a sky full of clouds for example and on fire for me doesn't really rock my boat but uh, that's why photography is a, <laughs> a wonderful thing everybody likes what you like what you like and you, everybody has their opinion on what they what they do like definitely i suppose with sort of editing software now as well that it can become you know you, you can have two photographers shoot the same scene and or even just sort of minutes apart you you think in when the sun's setting how quickly the sky can change color i mean i've had shoots in the past where i've shot at sunset and you know, you, you shoot in one shot one minute and the sky's pink as anything. And then five minutes later, it's turned sort of a lovely orangey yellow. So, you know, even shooting the same sunset can give such different results. And obviously then if you're there, it gives you the option to choose between the different colours and that kind of thing. And obviously cater it more to your taste. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think as well with with the editing software so good now, I mean, uh, as well as I have the full Adobe suite, but 
there's Skylum software as an example. You know, Luminar AI is just an insane bit of software that it's, again, it's up to the photographer. I don't really have a problem with photo, uh, photo manipulation. I think it's a piece of art at the end of the day and manipulating colors uh, and post-processing images is was done when photos were shot on film, you know, it depend dependent on the, the type of film you use. So, um, but the sky replacement tool, for example, in Skyland, you can change out skies so easily now. Um, so yeah, totally true. Two, two photographers could shoot at the same time, the exact same scene, and the end result could be worlds apart. <laughs> worlds apart. I think with photography as well, it's very subjective. So, you know, with colours and, and that kind of thing, it, it can be very much up to how your eye perceives it. I mean, for me with my photography, I always try to replicate how I remember the scene. And obviously my eyes may be different to, you know, you, if you and I were shooting at the same scene, you know, I might see it slightly differently to you. And then when we get it back and, and put it into Lightroom and that kind of thing and mess around with the colours, obviously you want it to, I think photos work best when they're used as a sort of a reference tool as to a specific memory or, you know, have that story behind them. So if you remember going somewhere and seeing it and you remember the orange being really poppy, but the camera wasn't able to capture that, then increasing it to how you remember it and how you sort of, how you feel that it was, then, you know, I see no problem with that because it should be up to you and how you remember it and your eyes perceived it could be very different to someone else's. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. Cool. Um, so moving on to your third shot then, which is uh, the top down of the castle. Do you want to talk us through why you've chosen this one? Yeah, so this is another, uh, again, kind of picking out a subject. So yeah, a lot of my uh, landscape photos that I always like to have a clean subject. So I do shoot some portrait shots, you know, as well, drone and camera wise. So I always like to have that clear focal point for the eye to be drawn into. And I think castles, ruins, uh, old shipwrecks, things like this, I think it, it really makes a photo. Uh, this particular castle, I think, is just a on a, so in a beautiful position, really dramatic looking position. And it's actually, so it's it's called New Slane's Castle. And again, it's in Aberdeenshire. Um, and it was actually the inspiration for um, the original uh, Dracula novel. So the son of the author uh, uh, actually got in contact with me and actually asked for commissions for a few of these, uh, few of these top town images. Uh, and again, it's quite a popular place to go and shoot. Uh, it's again on the same coastline as the previous image, the lighthouse image. And I've actually got, I think when I originally posted this, I, post, I tend to post in a set of three. So I like to have three uh, in a carousel for Instagram, for example. And I just really like this point of view. The top down, it works really well. But yeah, the three different, again, it's just that drone image, that drone angle just gives you so much more and more of an idea of the scale of the, the castle itself. Whereas some of the uh, the shots I managed to capture with, with the camera didn't really do it justice. And pretty much every, a lot of castles and, and things, which are becoming more difficult to shoot now, to be honest, because the new uh, drone laws, I think also things like uh, the National Trust, Scottish, uh, Scottish Heritage are now being far stricter about, um, you know, permissions and things for shooting these types of sites. This isn't actually a National Trust site, uh, so there, there aren't any restrictions for this particular one, but 
it's uh, yeah, this type of uh, castle or ruin just really gives. I think the drone perspective just really shows you the sheer scale of the place. I think even with drones in general, for you know, you see sort of National Geographic programs and and that kind of thing where they look back at sort of old ruins and that kind of thing, and they actually use drones now as sort of with with sort of three D imaging software to show the history of a building so you know there might be certain parts of it that are sort of buried underground and by sticking the drone in the air and using that sort of 3d software you can sort of see where the castle sort of once was i mean this this shot i really like as well because you've managed to capture a lot of texture in what could be perceived as normally if the sun was sort of looking straight down on it you'd have it it could be seen as quite a flat image but you know you've got all of the tracks sort of running down the side of the the ruin and you know you can see the texture of the grass and then on the right hand side you've got the obviously the cliffs running up and the texture on the rocks and then the white of the water sort of crashing against the the bits that are more sort of sea level so it's a really nice shot in you know you're you've got a lot of things going on but nothing sort of overpowers the castle which i think is really nice thanks yeah no this this particular one i must admit and quite a lot of top downs um there was quite a few there, there was actually i think there was two or three parked cars on one side that had, had to remove in photoshop just really distracted distracted me from the image and there was nothing really i could do because the light was perfect and i didn't want to wait for these cars to move to to, to get the shot and potentially be too late to get the get the light. But this particular one after editing in Lightroom needed just that extra pop. So there was a lot of dodging and burning went into this one particularly, uh, especially on just when the uh, the whites of the water tend to um, uh, dodge that quite heavily just to give it a little bit of pop and then burn almost like a, a vignette. So burn the outer edges of the, uh, of the water just to kind of draw you into the, into the castle itself. So this this one, this particular shot probably took the most editing out of the three, uh, but I think it was worth worth the effort. Um, I was quite pleased with it once I, got it once I got it out. It's funny when you first see the images, I think you'll have experienced as well, when you first get the images into Lightroom, because you're shooting quite flat, it's the same when they come out of a camera or a drone, if you're shooting in RAW, it's gonna be in a very flat profile and you don't really know how it's gonna turn out until you start getting that preset on, getting those edits on. So this one, I was really pleased once uh, I got to a certain stage of editing. And um, it was one that I edited so far. And before I put it into Photoshop, I thought I'll just leave it a day and then come back and have a look, just have that time because I didn't want to push push the colours too much, trying to make it as you know accurate as I could, but give that feeling like we were talking about before, you know? So, yeah. Um, so with this shot, was this multiple exposures? Because obviously, by the looks of things, the right-hand side of the image looks like it could have been quite dark with obviously the sun being in from the left-hand side. So was this sort of two exposures, three exposures that you've stitched together? No, this was actually just a single exposure. Uh, so I did shoot, I always, I always shoot three exposures. Uh, but this was actually, again, it was exposed on the higher end. So it was exposed on the uh, histogram right right over to the right hand side just without clipping too much uh, which you can get away with a bit more obviously because there's <clears throat> not as much sky not sky in the image so and it's just seemed to work i tend to play around with the three different exposures before i do any combining of exposures just to see how it's going to edit uh, and this one again i would say a lot of the 
the extra depth I had added in with some uh, graduation filters, some dodging and burning and things as well in a lot of areas. But I found that the on the lighter, the higher exposure, the one that's kind of drew more detail out the shadow, shadows just gave me that little bit more to play with and edit and when I'm editing the image, yeah. So no, just one exposure. Cool. Um, so we've sort of briefly touched on the fact that you're using Mavic Air. So do you want to run us through what normally goes in your bag with you when you sort of go out on shoots like this? I mean, obviously you've mentioned that you sort of shoot DSLR as well. And so do you want to just sort of run through what you take with you? So, well, the main reason I went to the Air was just pure size. And to be honest, the only reason I haven't upgraded to the, the Air 2, which I do fancy upgrading to at some point, is the size of the controller. And that's the only reason I think as a, as a drone, I think it looks looks really good. But just, just the sheer size and the performance that I get out of it, uh, I'm really happy with it. I really like it. Uh, I did have a, a Mavic Pro 2 for a while. Uh, really like the quality you can get out of that drone. Insane, especially on the video side. Um, really, really good. But just sheer size-wise to fit into my bag. So, yeah, I shoot mirrorless. So I shoot in a crop sensor camera, Lumix G9. Um, and I use all the um, <coughs> the um, collaboration lenses with uh, Panasonic and Leica, uh, so I find they are worth the extra money. Uh, they're they're all weather sealed. The cameras weather weather sealed. So because I like doing outdoor landscapes, adventure style photography, I tend to be out, tend to chase the bad weather a lot of the time. So I'm out in the rain, out in the snow. It is Scotland, so <laughs> the weather changes really quickly especially in the West Coast when in the likes of Glencoe, which is beautiful, beautiful spot and that I want to shoot more with the drone, actually. Uh, so I tend to go out with the drone. I have my full set of filters, but 90% of the time I have the uh, Polar Pro polarizer on there, you know, just left on there. Um, I have experimented a little bit with some of the ND filters and to get... Uh, it's amazing, actually, how much of a long exposure you can get with these, with these drones. Um, and certainly waterfalls in amongst trees, I think works works quite nicely. So I've been playing around with a little bit of that, but no, generally it's drone. Uh, I always have a spare phone to use as a screen because just switching, you know, using my uh, using my phone, my my normal phone is that uh, with the controller can be a bit awkward just when you're um, when you're up there. So I always have a spare one uh, with me. And then, yeah, camera gear wise, I put the camera body in three lenses. And then, filters wise, I'm not really a big tripod man. I do a lot of shots handheld. So, I'll only take the tripod if I really have to. And the good thing, the reason why I haven't changed the full frame really is on the crop sensor mirrorless camera on the G9, the stabilization is just insane. Uh, you really, unless you're going for a really long exposure, you just don't need a tripod. So that gives me a bit more space, um, which will maybe allow for that bigger controller on the, the Air 2. Let's see. <laughs> so obviously you said that you use a Mavic Air at the minute, and you obviously briefly touched on that you had a Mavic Pro 2, uh, 2 Pro, sorry, for a bit. So did you start out with the Air and then move to the 2 and then move back to the Air? And was it sheerly just because of space? No, well, actually, before I before I bought the uh, the Mavic Pro Two, I actually had a, a loan from a friend of the Spark, uh, and the Sparks Spark was good. It's a really good kind of beginner drone just to just to get a feel for things, uh, but just that extra bit of quality, being able to shoot in RAW, 
um, makes all makes all the difference. Um, so that that's the reason I wanted to change. And I got it was second hand. I bought the the, uh, the Pro Two from a friend of mine who has a, a drone business, and he's he's got quadcopters and Inspires and things. So you know this was kind of surplus the requirements. So I got a really good deal on it, uh, and it did. Yeah, like I say, quality wise, incredible drone. Really, really is. Uh, but yeah, it was purely on size that I changed. I had a shot of the the air, and I just thought, in terms of photos, I thought I could. I was still getting the same quality. Really, um, dynamic range is an issue with the sensor. The Hasselblad uh, uh, sensor on the on the Pro Two is immense, absolutely immense. But yeah, I think as long as you're shooting in the right light i don't find it a huge amount of a hindrance um, but yeah it's purely size and weight just so that it's always an addition to my, my main camera so i think if i can keep that uh, weight when you're carrying a big backpack up a hill or wherever i'm going to explore you want to keep the weight down as much as possible so um, so yeah that's where i switched i mean i guess it sort of depends on requirements as well because you know, for you in the work that you do, obviously you mentioned that you sort of primarily use a DSLR or mirrorless and the drone is there to sort of surplus that. So for you, the weight and size aspect is probably more important. Well, not more important, but is more of a deciding factor than say the image quality because the image quality on the air is still fantastic and you can still get some amazing shots of, as we've seen sort of from that sensor. But obviously the people that use the Air 2 maybe use their drone more primarily than, say, a DSLR. So I guess it sort of depends on requirements and for you, obviously, weight being important if you're sort of trekking to locations. So it's sort of all about that, sort of just basically catering to what your needs are. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the only the only kind of real disadvantage I've seen with it is uh, I do I sell a lot of prints. Uh, but with with the drone uh, side of things, you're very limited because that because of that resolution, you're very limited to the size that you can print a drone image. Uh, so that's with the with the Pro Two, you could push it that little bit further. And to be honest, you could go an A2 print would still look really good. Uh, whereas with the Air, kind of A3 is probably you know on the cusp. You're just pushing it depending depending how much you actually crop the image. When you're editing as well, that makes a huge difference. So that's the big limitation I see with it, and I think uh, I'll probably switch back, so or maybe wait for the uh, the Mavic Pro Three or whatever comes out to replace that. I might end up, but probably will upgrade at some point, to be honest. But for now, I think just that weight advantage makes all the difference. Absolutely. And I think even the Mini 2 that's recently come out, I think that's a fantastic drone and I've heard a lot of good things about it. And obviously now that it's got that improved bit rate and the camera can shoot 4K, like it's almost sort of comparable with the, the Mavic Air and being that smaller weight difference. And obviously with the new drone regulations, it means that you're able to fly it sort of a little bit closer and fly it in that A1 category. Yeah, absolutely. No, I did look at that to be honest. And that, again, it was just, I think for the moment, for the extra advantages that I was looking, mainly on print sizes, to be honest, I would probably just hold out because I think the air, I mean, the, the advantage I got, got the air unbelievably good price. Again, bought it secondhand. As soon as the new DJI re released drones uh, quite quickly, uh, slowed down a little bit just now. But uh, yeah, when, when they were being superseded, you get some unbelievable deals secondhand. And I think being able to go out 
and by, I think I managed to get the, the air, full set of Polar Pro filters that hadn't been used, uh, six batteries, uh, a holder for an iPad holder for the controller, uh, four sets of spare rotors. I think it was under £400 for the whole lot, which is just an unbelievable deal. Um, so I just thought, yeah, for bang for buck, you just can't go wrong. And I think with drones as well, as long as there's no sort of, as long as there's been no crashes, they tend to be pretty good. Like as long as you've got working batteries and they've not had any crashes, chances are if you're buying second hand, it's going to be as good as as a new one because especially DJI, they build their drones so well that they just last for for years and years of of flying. Yeah, yeah. No, I must admit, it's, I've I think I've only only actually crashed the drone twice. I think now in two years, but there could be a next time soon. We'll see. <laughs> I tend to be quite you know. Uh, I tend to be as safe as I possibly can. I think everybody has to, especially with the regulations getting tighter and tighter. You want to be as responsible as you can when you fly. Uh, but there are times when, for example, turn the sensors off and uh, you maybe have a play around coming in and out of your house or trying just to get that little bit closer to a tree or through tree branches and things. And you maybe push it that little bit too far. But when it has, when it has, I think there was one shot I was actually shooting for a, for a company uh, and it was a, a shot on a hammock. So it was a new hammock that was being released. It was actually a Canadian company. Uh, so I had the hammock set up in, in the woods and then thought it'd be quite neat to get a drone shot. So put the drone up as I was lying on the hammock, but the drone up as far into the trees as I possibly could because there was no real gap uh, and just pushed it too far. And then it ended up, landing on me <laughs> so thankfully with the air it's a nice light little drone but those those rotors if you catch yourself in the rotors they can they can sting so i've done that a few times doing the uh, the air catch so i've done that a couple of times but no really really well built drones i must admit yeah i think that probably would have been a different story if you were shooting that hammock with something like an inspire i think that probably would have hurt a little bit more that would have hurt yeah <laughs> absolutely absolutely so no, I think that that's another advantage. I think just with the size, I mean, what they can pack into the size of these, it's just incredible, really, the the technology and you know the size, and it allows you to get in these these different places. And I think as long as it's safe to do so, you're not you know it's not harming anybody if you hit a tree and you fall inside and you with no one else around. You know you're not a public as long as you're not in a public space that you could potentially someone in danger. Then have a bit of fun with it, you know, but. Turn, turn the sensors off at your own risk, I'd say, <laughs> at times. Yeah, and I think that's what these new regulations are sort of there to improve. Obviously, they're now based on how many people are around and, and what circumstances you're flying in. And obviously, that is then, that's what sort of is the determining factor of where you're allowed to fly and how close to people. So I think sort of opening that up is a good thing. And obviously, it's done to improve safety because... You know, there there have been instances of of people that maybe have a drone that can go really quick, and you know, maybe putting it in situations that they shouldn't. So I think, I think when I first saw the regulations, they were very daunting, and especially the table for the open category. At first glance, I didn't have a clue what was going on, but I think through doing this sort of A two C of C qualification, they sort of run through it um, and that kind of thing. So I think that helps to explain it a little bit more and i now have a better understanding overall of of what's expected and when you can fly and when you can't and those kind of things so i think 
for those that are sort of struggling with the understanding of it, you know, there's plenty of videos online that sort of break it down and make it a little bit more simplified because obviously that was the table that was released by the CAA. So it sort of links to a lot of other articles in it, you know, with anything that the CAA sort of produces, it can be very daunting at first if you don't know sort of a lot of the terminology. Absolutely. Yeah, it really is. I don't think, don't think they really knew how to implement it either when the, when the regulations changed, I think it was thirteenth of December. It officially switched, uh, and you're absolutely right. I think it was extremely poorly laid out, uh, which potentially could be a good or bad thing. I've spoken to a few friends about this, and I think if you're operating commercially, uh, so I renewed my license, and I've got the uh, uh, A2C of C and the the GVL license, uh, and I think it's it's good in some respects because you're, uh, there's going to be less and less people jumping into it uh, and potentially causing problems with people who are being responsible, you know, to, to fly commercially, you know, when it's as a ho- when it's a hobby, the ATUC of C, it's not, it's not expensive. It's, I think it was 50 pounds, I think 49 pounds, I think I was for it. And it's, I think you get a lot of knowledge from that for the money and it's worth doing anyway, uh, because just to cover yourself, because there's quite a lot of areas that are very dubious as well in terms of, uh, you know, crossing into private land and things. And I think as long as you have the DJI app, I think it's fantastic. The fact that it records all your flights, you can share your actual uh, your actual live flight and flight plan with people that maybe question you. Uh, and I think that's a that's a huge advantage. But no, it's I think it's still going a bit through a bit of transition. Uh, and I think a lot of historic sites as well, I think, are going through that transition to try and keep up with the technology and trying to implement restrictions, but not ban. Uh, so as an example, there's a, another castle just further along the coast, very Denotter Castles, uh, one of the most famous uh, castles in Scotland and the UK, actually, in the, in the East Coast. And they have put uh, no drones allowed uh, on, on site. But if you ask for permission, uh, then you're allowed to fly, but they, they ask that you fly out with visiting hours. And I think that's a sensible approach for a lot of these sites to go by, because I think uh, I totally appreciate that having drones flying about when people are trying to just enjoy and walk around with their family or, um, you know, whoever they might be with and enjoy the, uh, the the place that they're at. They don't You don't want drones flying about all throughout the day, but most photographers are going to get that shot. It tends, you can plan it around that. If you're out in the golden hours, tends to be at the, you know, after after the site's close, you know, uh, depending on the time of year. So I think that's a sensible way to go about it. And I think if a lot of people stick to that and just be sensible about how they change things, I think it'd be for the better, to be honest. Yeah, and I think Stonehenge operates a, a similar thing to that as well, because I went there in the last summer with the intention of flying um, but obviously by the time that I got there and then realised that they're not too keen on you flying a drone around, you know, there's plenty of signs saying don't fly your drones, but if you Google or put into Instagram Stonehenge drone shots, you still get hundreds of them come up, um, and I think officially Stonehenge will say that you're not allowed to fly a drone there at all, but obviously outside of hours and those kind of things, it may be a little bit more flexible, but by no means are we encouraging um, but obviously you touched on the A2CFC as well being sort of really informative. Um, I mean, Copters, uh, the UK drone website, 
they're offering the learning material for the A2C of C for free. So if you're sort of thinking about doing it and whether it's worth doing or not, it might just be worth having a read through of some of the material and seeing if it's for you. I mean, it's quite in depth, a lot of it, and it is quite full on, but if it's something that you're interested in, it's definitely worth persisting with because there's a lot of good stuff in there. Yeah, I would totally agree. And second that, I think it's a really worthwhile course to do and more just to protect yourself, you know, more than anything. Yeah, definitely. Um, So we've obviously touched on the fact that you use basically a mirrorless camera and then the drone is there to sort of subsidise using the camera. So how did you sort of first get into photography? Uh, To be honest, I haven't actually been into photography that long it's just over just over two years um and i've always kind of i used to be like to think i was quite creative when i was when i was younger and was coming through school i had a couple of different uh, career paths and the creative side was one i wanted to go down but i think it's kind of financially i just thought it's not the right right way to go uh, but i've always wanted to get back into something creative and i think that's what got me into photography initially and to be honest there's a lot of uh, certainly a lot of uh, full-time photographers or photographers that have been doing it for a number of years that put this hate on social media but instagram especially for me uh, is a huge it was a huge inspiration so going on there more so than i do have a facebook page and, and an instagram page but Instagram was really inspiring for me just because some of the images you see images you see on there just uh, absolutely outstanding so many different styles um, and on the drone side of things it was it was just seeing these top these simple top-down shots simple composition top-down shots just yeah I just really wanted to to get involved in that and it is a subsidy but I must admit it depends on the type of place I'm going so likes of castles historic sites and things um i think just the drone just gives that extra level of uh, you know that, that great perspective um uh, but it's funny i don't know a lot of my favorite favorite images i would say out of my top five images i would say at least three of them would be drone shots even though probably 80 percent of my, my photos are all shot with a mirrorless camera um but i just love that that perspective from a drone yeah it's uh yeah and it, like i say it's social media i think yeah there's an abundance of content now but i think there is still that variety there is still that change in styles a lot you know a lot of the those kind of moody shots came instant came into instagram but that really got me inspired because uh, everybody's got their own take but anything that just anything oversaturated when it comes to landscape travel adventure style photography if if it's been pushed that to the point of being not unrealistic because everything's manipulated in some way but uh, that muted moody look i think especially in scotland and the landscape in scotland that moody atmospheric look just really suits uh, the place that we are you know whereas people shooting in uh, in warmer climates you can you can push those colors that little bit further but uh, yeah, that, that's the main reason I got into it was really just inspiration from social media, to be honest. Yeah, and I think North Scotland as well, obviously you mentioned the sort of dark and moody stuff and a lot of the shots that people have submitted onto the podcast where we've sort of chatted about them, if they've been from Scotland or Iceland's a similar one just because you've got a lot of the mountains and the moody weather, that those moody shots tend to work really, really well. 
Um, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned as well, obviously, about using the drone as a subsidy. I know we've obviously talked about it, but on the previous episode, I was chatting with a guy called Jethro Kinn, and um, he's a photographer based in North Wales. Um, and he was saying that he tends to use his drone as almost as a mobile tripod um, and use it in a situation where he can't get the shot with the camera. So if he's somewhere and, you know, I, I watched a video, I mean, I said it in the previous episode, but... There's a, there's a video online of a guy that says that you should use the drone in a situation where if you can't get the camera there. So if you think that the perfect composition is five feet above your head and you haven't got five feet arms or you can't get to that height, then use the drone in that situation. It doesn't always need to be at 400 feet with, you know, if, if you feel that the composition works at just above head height, then take it at just above head height. You know, don't be afraid to... It doesn't have to be used at the max all the time. It, it sort of can be used as a, a tool as and when you need it kind of thing. Totally agree. Yeah, totally agree. There's actually a, a, a really good, uh, I watch a lot. That's another thing that actually inspired me a bit more was actually all the different YouTube creators as well. There's a lot of YouTube vloggers, YouTube creators that use the drone to just capture that vlog footage, you know, just to get that, that uh, those cinematic shots and get the, those uh, extra kind of b-roll shots if you like for their for their vlogs and it works really well but then there's some that tend to not like i think just with the quality difference i think as well like to use the drone photos so much that push more on the cameras but i personally think totally agree i think a drone the images you can get from drones now are just so good and they're getting better all the time depending on the size if you're doing if you're a, a pro, a kind of traditional landscape photographer, if you like, I suppose, if you're selling large prints, it's maybe not the best way to go. Uh, but for social media content, any content online, the quality is is more than more than good enough. And I think if you can just get, even if it is like you say, just a few feet above your head, and you get that better better composition with the drone, do it. You know, and for scouting as well, I actually use it quite a lot. Um, trying to build my fitness up more and more. My my wife's she uh, she does marathons, lots of hill hill walking, upman rows, and uh, I struggle to keep up. I can't I can't keep up with that. So um, getting my fitness up, the drone's just that extra bit that you can do a bit of a scouting run with the drone first, and just think right, is it worth actually going to the top of this hill? Is it worth going that extra extra few miles to get to get a shot? And uh, Quite often when I do that, to be honest, I end up getting the shot with the drone. <laughs> I just think, well, there's no point in taking the camera. So, uh, so no, it's good. It's It just gives you so many possibilities, I think. I mean, and they're great fun. Yeah, too right, too right. Uh, I think F- FPV is the next, you know, that's the next thing I want to I want to try. FPV drones just look insane. Some of the, especially on the likes of Instagram Reels, some of the footage, uh, there was a really good video recently. I can't remember the, the creator, but there was a really good uh, uh, film from the old man of store. Uh, and it was shot with an FPV drone. And just just that that uh, flow you can get with, with the uh, video footage just looks insane. Um, and I do want to do more and more video. I have been doing more video during lockdown, to be honest, uh, with, uh, with the drone. Uh, but... I must admit, it's still photography is still my main main focus. But yeah, FPV footage just looks insane. It really does. Looks yeah, definitely. Fun. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very different flying style to 
some of the DJI stuff. I mean, I've done some stuff on the on the FPV simulators, um, and it is once you get your head around it, it sort of makes sense. But going sort of especially from DJI stuff straight into FPV, it's a very different feel. I mean, it there's not really anything that I can sort of liken it to, but it is a very unusual thing to sort of fly with. But it, I mean, it is great fun. Um, and I think once I've built up enough hours on the simulator, I think I'll definitely be picking one up and and sort of um, moving forwards with it. But, you know, we've had some great FPV pilots on the on the podcast in sort of previous episodes and, you know, they've spent hours just perfecting it and perfecting it. And, you know, I think it's one of those things as well that you need to be wary that it's going to cost you some money because, you know, obviously they're quite easy to crash. They haven't got the, the sort of return to home. They haven't got the obstacle avoidance. So if you pelt it into a wall at nearly 100 mile an hour, then unfortunately I think you're going to have to get another drone. But I guess that's sort of what's good about them. And there, there are rumours that DJI are going to be bringing out their own sort of FPV drone like a, as a whole thing um, rather than just the sort of transmission system. So I think once DJI do that, I think a lot of other people will then follow and you know as with anything dji once once they release something i think the the popularity will increase and more people will sort of start picking it up yeah absolutely absolutely i mean they are they are i think the main reason why dji has done so well is just yeah the standard drones are so easy to fly they really are uh, they've made them dummy proof really uh fpv is just a different different ball game altogether but you know the uh, yeah pretty much anyone the regulations restrict a lot of that but Pretty much anyone can pick up a, a DJI drone and fly it and fly it competently relatively quickly. Um, and that, that's what I really like, to be honest. But yeah, that extra thrill, extra thrill on FPV could be could be really good. Really, really good. Yeah, definitely. I think I think flying FPV with the goggles as well may take a little bit getting used to, especially I mean, I not vertigo as such, but I'm I'm not a massive fan of sort of the, the dizzy feeling that you get. So I think it might be a it might be a case of I need to sit down on my first couple of flights to to sort of get acquainted with the feeling of sort of falling off the side of a cliff almost. Yeah, there's actually a really good. I just watched that. I watched on like on YouTube, for example, watched uh, a lot of creators like uh, Peter McKinnon's obviously one of the biggest ones that watch. But one of the guys that's worked with Peter McKinnon is Matty Hopier, uh, the, the the Finnish creator, and he actually did a recent video where. Uh, on, on FPV drones, and it was actually on the new uh, GoPro Hero 9. There's a, an, a new accessory now that, and I think it's produced by GoPro. I could be wrong with that. It might be a third party, but it's a lens replacement that basically keeps your horizon perfectly level. Um, and that, that looked like it would be a game changer for, for FPV stuff because any footage that I've seen, and because uh, a couple of friends of mine, they, they fly FPV, and the footage can be a bit of a nightmare to edit because you know horizons all over the place, uh, but this actually keeps it perfectly level. Um, and yeah, that was quite interesting. That could be a, a huge leap forward. So I think if DJI came out with something like that, because of the, the size of the brand, I think people would jump on it. Absolutely, I I, I know I would. <laughs> yeah, I think as long as you've got sort of twelve to fifteen hundred quid to to spend on on that drone, I think. <laughs> unfortunately that's dji are expensive but they're expensive for a reason and you get that good quality that with them um just sort of finishing up then is there any tips that you could sort of offer to anyone that is maybe just picking up a drone obviously you've been flying for sort of two years now so is there anything that you've sort of learned and you think you could offer some advice to people just starting out 
Yeah, I think the two main tips. First, the first one would be uh, exposure. Uh, make make sure make sure you practice, learn learn how to use learn how to follow and how to use a histogram. Make sure you've got the histogram on your screen. Uh, and I tend to always expose. Everybody will have their own preference, but I tend to find that exposing on the high side just gives you that more that extra bit of flexibility. Just make sure you don't clip those highlights. Uh, but sometimes it's avoidable, to be honest. And sometimes that that look works. I've seen a lot of shots actually that you know the sky's blown out and those moody type type of images can can work like that. Uh, but that's the big thing that uh, has helped me a lot. Uh, get that shot because there's been quite a few occasions I've been out and just underexposed and trying to pull the detail back out the image with that small sensor camera and the, the dynamic range it has. Um, yeah, you just can't push it as far. So that would be the, the first thing. Um, secondly is make sure you uh, tripod mode, I think for me, taking photos with, with a drone. Again, you know, the drone's in the air at the end of the day. And if it's that little bit, even if it's uh, a really perfectly still day, you will get a good, you know, you can get good image, images without using it. But I just find that that extra bit of sharpness you get by putting it into the tripod mode just makes all, all the difference. And it's nice as well because I think you put it into that mode on, on the air especially and um, it slows everything down. Your movements are much slower. I think it just... You can kind of, you know, get it into get your drone into position, get that composition roughly where you want it, and then just for fine tuning it, tuning it, it's very easy because you can be a bit kind of overzealous when you first start out and move, moving the uh, moving the controls. So um, just fine tuning that composition and try. It. The more you can fine tune it, and the less cropping you've got to do in uh, in post, makes a huge difference, I think. Uh, but no, that's that's the two main things, especially on the photography side. Uh, I don't think I'm, like I say, getting into video uh, more and more. But yeah, there's far far uh, more people that are more experienced that could give better tips on that. But certainly on the photography side, that would be that would be my two main tips. I think. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for coming on today. Um, it's been really great chatting and obviously hearing about your shots and and I think we've covered a, a good range of topics for for the listeners. So. I really appreciate you taking time out of your evening. Um, do you want to just remind everybody how they can find you on Instagram and your website and that kind of thing? Yeah, so first of all, it's been a real, uh, real uh, pleasure speaking to you. It's been really, really good. And uh, yeah, good fun. And yeah, I'm on Instagram as Heesman, So it's H-E-A-S-M-A-N underscore photography. Uh, and then it's just Heesman on Facebook as well. And then I have my website as well, uh, which is... Uh, jamesheesman.co.uk uh, so just self-branded <laughs> uh, but yeah I appreciate anybody that comes over and takes a look at my, my work and all the best cool well thank you very much um, and all the best with everything in the future brilliant thanks a lot